0: Welcome to Modern Mortality. My name is Matt Boulos. This is the podcast where we talk to experts across fields to examine how they relate to mortality. This is our first episode with Haley Ware, who is a former ballet dancer and a current massage therapist, who has graciously agreed to join the conversation about mortality. The practices of dance and massage require great attention and mindfulness in order to connect to the moment and their healing capacities Haley, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Thanks for having me on, Matt. Uh, So I am a master level ashiatsu therapist. Um, I own my own practice called Wherewithal Massage Company. Um, And like Matt said, I used to be a professional dancer.
0: And can you tell us kind of... More about what Ashiatsu is?
1: Yeah, so it's a really old massage technique. Um, it originated in Japan about 3,000 years ago, and ashiatsu means foot pressure. So I use my body weight and my feet to massage people. It's kind of a weird one. <laughs>
0: Um, yeah, and how did, like, did your dance path lead you to this, or was there any kind of direct relationship, or was it just kind of a coincidence?
1: So, I always knew that massage therapists, um, didn't last long in the field, um, and that's because their wrists tend to give out really fast, um, and I always knew that I was stronger in my feet, and that I am a pretty small person. I'm about 5'2", so I would never be able to work on the people I wanted to work on in any sort of meaningful capacity um, with my tiny little hands. And since I did point for a long time, my toes are super dexterous. So it just seemed to fit in well with what I was already doing.
0: That makes sense. I never thought about the longevity aspect to mm-hmm. massage therapy. I
1: think the like literature is massage therapists last between like three to five years.
0: Interesting. That's, that's similar to like in the medicine world um, people that work nights generally only last two to five years working nights.
1: Oh my gosh. I can imagine. I would hate that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, different stressors, but um, yeah, that's interesting. I I just never thought that it'd be such a short life cycle for you know normal circadian rhythm work. But I guess it is. It is intense. You're definitely doing a lot of of work and using your own body which is its own sacrifice
1: yeah it's like working out all day and also it's like kind of in the physician realm where you probably get really burnt out just from dealing with people's crap
0: <laughs> for sure yeah there's definitely that that emotional load that you take whether you're aware of it on a on an interaction to interaction action <laughs> basis or or not, because sometimes you just got to numb out to get through. Has your practice with massage or dance, uh, like, really helped you resonate or process any grief, loss, or experiences with death?
1: I think it's interesting because people tend to treat me not just as a body worker, but as their, like, actual therapist, which can be problematic most times, um, But I get to see people process their own grief, and that tends to be a really great way to model that there is no right or wrong way to experience the death of someone you love. And I never really was interested in working in palliative care or anything like that i remember in massage school actually when we had a class one day where we had to kind of think about where we wanted to specialize um and i was like absolutely not not working with dying people of course not Um, And the more I work on people, the more interested I am in how their bodies are starting to unwind in old age. Um, So I think that's kind of what brought me to considering what a good
0: death looks like. Okay. So in your experience with massage, have you seen, like, what are some of the examples or, like, the spectrum of? grief you've you've worked with or worked through with some of your clients if you can share without sharing too much?
1: Yeah. So in kind of broad um, lens, I see quite a few people who are coming to get massages because they've just had major life events and feel really stressed out. And you know, when you feel super stressed out and you're always in your sympathetic nervous system, everything feels really heightened and you're not really sure how to exist in your body anymore. So I really try to help people bring awareness and try to re-engage their parasympathetic nervous system so that They don't have to process their loved one's death in such a heightened state. Um, But I've also seen older folks who are really nervous about the end of their lives because it is so medicalized
0: Mm. and
1: they know that they might be going into a nursing home or that they might um die in a hospital and that's not really the most loving you know dying happily in your bed surrounded by people that love you um so trying to teach them how to find love and happiness but also like how to create their own space if they know that they're gonna die somewhere they're they don't really want to
0: so if i'm hearing you correctly it sounds like and just in terms of the mortality piece we can talk more about why people come for massage in a second (laughs) but um maybe you deal with people that are acutely aware of mortality and they are on the spectrum towards opening up to that awareness or being more interactive to it as opposed to more avoidant. Whereas in my work, I feel like there's 10% of patients that are absolutely in, in a denial and want to avoid the discussion of end-of-life care, mortality, their death at all mm-hmm. costs. And then there's probably 10% on the other end of the spectrum that have been thoughtful. They know what they want. They know how they want to proceed. They know which big interventions that they're open to, but they ultimately know they're going to die. Mm-hmm. And then there's like 80% of people in the middle that. <laughs> Maybe it's not the right time to talk to them about it. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're kind of indifferent. They're not quite to the avoidance or the denial or the acceptance part of it. But it sounds like you're witnessing people kind of start to open up to the mm-hmm. idea.
1: Yeah, and it's not like they come in and lay down and are like, Let's, let me learn about this from my massage therapist, Um, It's kind of in this situation where they come to see me more and more and they learn that I am very open about, you know, the process of their body changing. Because that's really what massage Mm -hmm. therapy is about, like, seeing change in your body and honoring that change. Mm -hmm. So... I think that when you go to see a physician, right, you all you always expect that this physician's gonna make you better. Where in massage therapy that's the goal, but better is a little bit more flexible. So it's better like my muscles not gonna hurt, or it's better like I'm gonna feel more calm and more prepared for whatever's coming. Hmm.
0: I mean, full disclosure, I've been working with Haley as a massage therapist for a little over a year now. Yeah, it's um, been a little while. Yeah, and I just wanted to say I, I never thought about massage in those ways that it is such a resemblance of your body changing. Um, but I do definitely feel like what you're saying right now Resonates to my experience is you create a very safe space. So it sounds like other people are are sensing that and coming to you and are exploring, you know, sensitive, um, vulnerable areas. And was that a was that something that you knew was going to happen when you started? Oh or God, no. <laughs> no, no. <laughs>
1: I was not expecting that. Like, I, my bread and butter to begin with was really sports massage. And the people I was getting on my table were like big macho dudes who were like, stomp on my shoulder until it <laughs> feels better. <laughs> um, but I also did some volunteer work before massage school um, with people who have Parkinson's. And- and um, so I was doing a Pilates for Parkinson's class, and I was noticing that these people felt so much better when they knew that their bodies were changing, but they also had a way to exist and interact with the other people who kind of could help them understand what their limitations but also what they still could do Um, so that's kind of what I try to preach in my practice like hey your shoulder can't bend like that anymore but you still can do other things Um, and those other things are just as valid for you as being able to do what you could do 10 years ago
0: And I think that's a really important message that most people could use a reminder of daily or weekly, or, you know, with some repetition that
1: Mm -hmm.
0: you're going to lose function and you're going to have to figure out how to live your life in a different way over and over again. Mm
1: -hmm. And that's kind of what I get the most when people come in and, and I do intakes, they're like, my body is just not working and i'm like well tell me what's not working and they just have a picture of them in their 20s and are like i can't run 20 miles like i used to and i'm like you're 75 of course <laughs> you're not going to do that so yeah. i think people with the advent of you know modern medicine are getting are staying alive longer and staying healthier longer and we kind of have In America this rose-colored glasses of you know what aging looks like and that's not true for most people
0: right even even people that are fortunate to age you know relatively well you Mm -hmm. know let's say they're able to go to the gym three times a week and they eat well and they sleep enough but even those people are gonna have issues As they get closer to dying from whatever that cause might be. Do you remember the first, like, big loss that you had?
1: I totally do, because my first loss was actually my dad. He died when I was about between 10 and 11, I think, just before my 11th birthday. And, like, I lost him before I lost a grandparent or a pet or really anything, so mm-hmm. that was a big shock for me. Um, I think my family knew that he was ill, but me and my sister, we were quite young, so we didn't know.
0: Do you recall like, kind of how you responded to that lob? So do you, do you think it shaped you in a particular way?
1: Yeah, so I think my hunt for a good death really is inspired by him because I, he actually died when I was at a friend's house. So I just saw him one day and then I never saw him again. Mm. So I think because he was cremated actually, um, but I think that is what really interests me and ritual around death. Because I think Americans, especially and broadly in the West, we don't have that kind of ritual around death. And that's really since, I think, like the Civil War with the advent of embalming. Um, we don't care for our dead. We don't, you know, people used to keep the dead in their houses for several days and they would wash them and make sure they had all of the things that they wanted with them when they were buried, um, but we just don't have that anymore, and I think that's really sad.
0: Yeah, no pun intended, but it's like death died with our culture in a way. Right. Um, I just wanted to point out a couple of things that you said. Um, uh uh-huh. thank Thanks for sharing that. that was yeah. Totally, totally vulnerable, and appreciate that. i um, sorry for your loss. Oh, thanks. The the verbiage that you said, a hunt for a good death, can you Mm. expound kind of on that phrase?
1: Yeah, so I think because my dad died so young, I thought about death a lot, especially because he was my first death, and I don't know as a 10-year-old if I really understood fully the concept of death, like I knew what it was but I didn't think I knew about the profoundness of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've been kind of researching death for a long time. Like I saw my mom go through, you know, him maybe not having like a death plan. So I think she knew he wanted to be cremated, but we had to fight around with different family members about like, who got to do what and right. what he wanted and all of this. So I really advocate for wills. Um, I advocate for knowing what you want and letting the people around you know that what you want. Um, and I've also been thinking about, like, death in the environment because I think, I it for myself, would love a natural burial um kind of letting myself uh unwind and get back to the earth because cremations actually even though they're more cost effective um, i think i read that it's about one cremation consumes as much energy as about a 500 mile car ride oh wow and of course that emits pollutants like you know, carbon monoxide and sulfur dioxide. And I think even in mercury from people's like fillings and dental procedures. Mm.
0: Um yeah, it also stuff all goes somewhere.
1: Yeah. And also caskets apparently take about like twenty to thirty million feet of hardwood. Um so if you can just think about the amount of forest that is. Um, And also, death is really expensive. It's so expensive to die in the United States. Um, I'm sure you know all about, like, the bills in the hospital if you die at a hospital. And then without thinking about that, I think with, like, burial plots and you know, cremation, or um, embalming, or whatever you decide, the average funeral is about 8000 to $9,000. Um, and that, I know people who have had to, you know, mortgage their home, or, you know, go to GoFundMe to, you know, raise money for a funeral. And right. I think that's just so sick that you have to crowdfund and pick your favorite death from gofundme to fund like that's just not a a culture that I want to live in
0: yeah I mean that Um, that industry of funerals and deaths like it truly seems like a failing culturally mm -hmm.
1: there's there
0: has to be a better way
1: um, yeah and we're running out of space to put dead people. And if you think about how the Earth is warming and how the, uh, available land space is going to start shrinking pretty soon um, and going into the water, you know, we're, we're kind of doomed if we so- want to be um, buried, basically.
0: So what what does a g- good death look like to you at this point?
1: I think for me, a good death would be one where my family knew what I wanted. Uh, it's very clear for them what I want. Of course, I'm not going to really be able to decide how I want to die unless I know, you know, outright that I'm dying. But I think... Putting people into palliative care earlier, especially if I'm sick, is something that I would want. I read, and you might be able to expand on this a little bit more, that putting people into palliative care earlier eases anxiety towards death and kind of um, allows families to transition better. Um... So yeah, yeah, if I know that I'm dying, palliative care all the way.
0: Yeah, I'm a huge proponent of palliative care, and people, people I guess rightfully so, associate palliative care with hospice, but it mm-hmm. doesn't have to be hospice. Mm-hmm. So uh, lots of times we use palliative care for people that have just chronic diseases, like Um, I have a lot of experience with pulmonary diseases. So people that have like interstitial lung disease or cystic fibrosis, like how can we just make their symptoms on a day-to-day basis of like shortness of breath or secretions? How can we minimize that discomfort? And that might be an introduction to get people into palliative care. And then in those cases, when they are with more progressive disease states, it's just easier to make the transition from, just symptom management, more to end-of-life decisions. Um, And I do try to, it's easier to see this stuff coming with people that have chronic diseases that are just progressive, such as lung diseases, uh, to get them referred to things like, you know, pulmonary rehab or physical therapy, and and then suggest palliative care. But sometimes you just, you have to meet people where they are and people will reference their family members' experiences or somebody else's experience with palliative or hospice. And sometimes that can be such a coloring experience that they're either all for it or, or, or very much against it. And it's just it just depends on where everyone is. But yeah, from, a, from my personal practice opinion, I think palliative care is a wonderful tool that should be utilized as much as people are willing to dive into it.
1: And I think um, it's unfortunate because I think a lot of people see palliative care and think, "Oh, I'm giving up."
0: Right, and and there's no, there is no giving up here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, I I have a pet peeve once when, when people are referencing any chronic disease, but the most common one is you know when someone has cancer and they describe it as a fight or a battle. Mm-hmm. Oh they lost their battle. Can't. That doesn't make any sense. Like they didn't yeah. choose that. They didn't they're not actively fighting it like they, it's just a failing of the immune system that you know we all succumb to it at some point but it's not it's not a competition like to put that kind of responsibility or pressure on somebody in the sickest moment of their life just also seems like a cultural failing. Mhm.
1: And I think since you dealt a lot with COVID in your um, earlier years, I guess, um, how did you see people dying without families or um, without, you know, no one could watch over them 24-7 like I'm sure a lot of families wanted for their loved ones?
0: Being a pulmonary critical care fellow during 2020 was arguably the worst job at the time. (laughs) Um, And it was extremely challenging emotionally uh, just because, like, personally, I get a lot out of, like, face-to-face interaction with my patients. So not being able to talk to them personally about what they wanted. And then at that time, family members weren't allowed in the hospital. So the best we could do Most times was a phone call and then eventually some systems got more mature and you could use FaceTime and things like that, but it was still no replacement for, you know, live contact. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the most memorable and heart wrenching moments were in the middle of the night when somebody came in with COVID clearly a respiratory failure. um, And You know, moments before they were going to be intubated, we were able to get FaceTime with the family member and say, Hey, this is what's going on. I'd like you to have this last moment to just say whatever you'd like to to each other because I don't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, it was just so emotionally taxing. But Mm -hmm. through that year, it got me really comfortable with the idea of dying and mortality and eventually it's it's kind of like any exercise like it was having these discussions just became second nature Mm -hmm. and i got to be fairly efficient and comfortable having them and i think we need people in medicine that are comfortable having these conversations to help guide people to i'll use your term to a good death Yeah, Uh, because it doesn't happen organically. The system is not set up for a good death to happen. It's got (laughs) to be thoughtfully laid out and discussed with family. And that's always a big thing is like, maybe I'll start with a code status discussion uh, during a hospitalization. And if I can tell they're not quite ready to make a real decision, then I say, well, hey, let's just use this as a entry point or a reminder that you and your family need to talk about these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And I, mean, I, I, I hope we don't have any type of respiratory pandemic again in our lifetime, but yeah. if we do, I think a lot more people will be more prepared and I'm hoping that this podcast can kind of keep that momentum of, of keeping mortality in people's minds um, moving forward, because it is something that we all deal with at some point but i wanted to go back to another point comment that you had made about how you saw your dad one day and then the next day he wasn't there and i don't know if you're familiar with any of the stoic meditations but one of the stoic meditations is called the last time Mm -hmm. and the idea is that if you treated everything like it was going to be the last time you did it Mm-hmm. then you'd be that much more present and that much more aware of it. So mm-hmm. then even if it's not, it's going to be at some point, right? Right. So, so like my dog died in the spring and I I didn't know exactly what was wrong with her, but like we all kind of knew something was wrong. Mm-hmm. So just little things like at night when I would give her treats, it's like, oh, this might be the last time I give her a treat. Mm-hmm. And I, that just made it that much more meaningful I don't know if that's the right word but I was definitely more present for it Um, so I just it seems like you were kind of aware of that but it was just probably caught you by such surprise at you know 10 or 11 years old
1: yeah I think I would have been pretty acutely aware of my surroundings and how I interact with other people so I am fortunate enough to say that I think I knew something was coming I just didn't know what Um, so I think as a child experiencing death is kind of a double-edged sword where you kind of experience it with such I'd like to say a sponge like um a sponge of like goodness is what sure I'm gonna is, yeah. say um so if it's your first time you don't really know it to expect and it kind of shapes you And all of the other experience of death you have throughout your life. And I think a lot of people focus right now on what we should and shouldn't be teaching in schools. But I think incorporating death positivity in school might be something interesting to look at
0: what do you think allowed you to kind of open up to this idea and you know not instead of on the flip side like I think a lot of people at that age have probably become bitter and shut off to to a lot of things not just death but probably probably just daily experiences in their life do you have any idea of what kind of led you or allowed you to remain open
1: that's a good question i mean i was almost a teenager though i won't say i was as angsty uh, <laughs> but i think i've just always been curious and always been interested in the little things and knowing that life marches on with it or without you kind of is comforting Um,
0: yeah i i I mean i agree i just i think it's very striking as a angsty preteen to to just have that sort of awareness of of impermanence and you know things keep going so you might as well go with it that's just I don't feel like that's the cultural norm.
1: Yeah, I've always been an odd bird, I guess.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you think dance had an influence on that?
1: I've been thinking about that, and I think in dance, especially um, modalities like ballet, um, you always know that your career is not going to last very long. Like... 30 35 and you're an old maid basically so knowing that your career too is impermanent Mm -hmm. you know just more um validation that you just got to keep swimming
0: yeah certainly that's it is funny to think about, I'm, a, I'm about that age um, mm-hmm. of the old maid age <laughs> of, of dancers, and just to consider that across the board for any type of performance, art, or athletics that your career is over, basically, mm-hmm. around the time that your, quote, real life starts. Yeah. I um, mean,
1: I think I just keep picking jobs that are in permanent.
0: well that's the everything is impermanent yeah
1: that's true
0: so i i think that's a good mindset to just know that hey i'm gonna start this project whatever it is and you you know it's gonna end at some point you just don't know when or how necessarily Mm -hmm. did you ever like in your training and your dedication during the dance period like were there moments of You know, this is an overused term, but flow state or mindfulness that you just kind of felt so entwined with the environment around you.
1: Yeah, so I was lucky enough that in my training, we did a lot of mindfulness meditation and we would improv and uh, meditate at the same time. So it was pretty Often that, as a group and as individuals, we would be able to kind of enter that flow state. But so wait I a second, like, can I can I interrupt yeah. you for a
0: second? You said you would meditate and do improv at the same time. What does that yeah. look like?
1: So, um, depending on who was teaching, where we were. Um, we would first start in kind of like traditional like corpse pose, basically, where you're laying on the floor, face up, palms up, and just trying to like dive into yourself and mm-hmm. find that kind of like inner ticking spirit. And then as you kind of got deeper into yourself, you would introduce like tiny little movements and feeling what that felt like and how your fingertips connected to your toes on the other side, for example. Mm -hmm. And as you continue going through your body and understanding how things connected that day, because they change every day, you would generally kind of move on to bigger more abstract movements and then all of a sudden you're running around the room or doing these big movements and you almost didn't know where they're coming from if you were um, making them happen or your nervous system oh. decided hmm. that that's what it needed today
0: interesting is that is that a common way that like dances, Practice or performed or like new choreographies created. I'm I'm totally yeah an idiot when it comes to the dance. No,
1: um, yeah. So it kind of depends on the intention of the choreographer or the company. Um, definitely not commercial dance like Broadway or dancing for commercials or for tours or anything. That's probably not happening. But uh, a modern dance, that's definitely happening. That's mm. part of the, your warm-up, essentially. It's important to warm up your muscles, but also warm up your intuition, basically.
0: That's really cool.
1: Because it's important in dance that you kind of know you yourself so you can know others. Interesting. Yeah, it's definitely it? a great, I think you would excel actually in dance because you're so in tune with yourself.
0: Well, thank you. That sounds like high praise. I, <laughs> the, the extent of my dance is, you know, just in the kitchen usually. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, kitchen dancing is mindful sometimes.
0: True, true. You were in dance and you had all of these intuitive experiences where you're just trying to communicate what's in in yourself and the environment around you and then you find yourself working in a healing art so do you find yourself like connecting the two ever?
1: Yeah so ashiatsu is really if you stood and watched me Um, massage you can kind of see that flow state i'd like to think um so i kind of intuit my way around my client's body and i don't like to think of it as i'm just manipulating tissue it's that my tissue is manipulating yours tissue and my mm. nervous system is manipulating your nervous system but also the other way around sometimes I like to think that I can kind of put a barrier sometimes if people come in with crazy energy but that's not <laughs> always the case
0: <laughs> yeah that that's interesting I've certainly thought about like on being on the receiving end of professional massage of like there's a shared energy. It does feel more connected sometimes than others. But mm-hmm. I, I guess I was just ignorant to not consider that from the practitioner side too.
1: Yeah, totally. In massage school, one of my friends and I decided that we would imagine that we had these like blue vinyl gloves on that sparkled. So whenever we waited. Would... Could work on somebody that was just not given great energy. You would pretend <laughs> to put those on and keep <laughs> on going.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's an interesting strategy that that makes sense. Just try to make your day a little easier that day.
1: And I think most massage therapists and most physicians are really intuitive people and sometimes you just don't realize how much you're taking on from other people sometimes i'll call home and be like oh why am i just so angry all of a sudden Mm. and it's because you know i just saw somebody who got you know fired from their job or is going through a divorce or things like that
0: yeah yeah that energy definitely does transfer and especially on days that maybe you're tired or your awareness isn't what it normally is and you don't have that capability to put the boundary up, you Mm can definitely seep in.
1: Yeah, Uh, I notice it more on days where I haven't had time to kind of sit by myself before I start massaging. So I'm not really as aware of what I'm feeling before I go into a massage. Mm-hmm. so then I just take on more thinking it's mine.
0: Do you have a mindfulness practice?
1: I try to. Um, it doesn't always happen, but I just started my own business. So there's a lot of things I have to take care of that I didn't have to take care of before. So... I definitely find myself laying on my floor at random moments (laughs) and just turning all the lights off and just kind of honing in.
0: Taking you back to your dance days. maybe. Yep.
1: I will lay on the floor anywhere and try to get back in.
0: (laughs) I mean, every little bit counts, that's for sure. (laughs) You, you've mentioned this concept of a death doula, and you're the first person I've heard talk about this, and yeah. then someone I work with has also mentioned that they've actually done the training. Like, oh, can good. you kind of paint that picture of what that means?
1: Yeah, so if you think about a doula, they help um, a person with the uterus brain and you know their child into the world, and they're kind of an advocate for the birthing parent, um, just to make sure that they're still being attended to, even when the the medical establishment kind of decides to focus on the baby more. Um, there's this idea of fourth trimester where the baby gets. All of the attention and then the birthing parent is just kind of fallen to the wayside. So they're there to help make sure that transitions are great for the birthing parent. So, with being a death doula, it's kind of the same thing. Um, if you think about seasons of life, um, helping people make decisions and helping people. Um, slide into their mortality a little bit easier. Um, So depending on what the death doula thinks is their scope of practice, maybe they'll just help um, the family and the dying person decide what to do with their remains or... What they want as a funeral option and figuring out their will and other things like that. Um, But some more involved death doulas might actually come to the house or come wherever their person is and enact ritual as they're dying and help take care of the body help the family take out of the body um, once they've passed.
0: So it sounds like it, it could range from any sort of tasks just mm-hmm. around that period of death. Right. Um, so is it more of that post-mortem support to loved ones to the person that died, or, or is there any like, hands-on involvement with the person that is dying?
1: No, I definitely think that the person who is actively dying is the primary focus of the death doula. And then it just happens to be extra care for um, the loved ones around them. Um, But it also helps make sure that... The uh, dying person's wishes are being held, being carried out by the family, um, and if they have any questions, because death is really confusing in bureaucracy. Um, just that's a-
0: exactly where I was going to go next. Is like, what does this look like? Like, do you, if someone wanted to employ this idea of a death doula. Do they need to go through, like, the legal channels of appointing them as their POA, or, or do you I, know that yet?
1: I'm not sure, but I imagine that most people at this time who are hiring death doulas are probably telling their families about it, and their families are probably pretty cool with it, so I, I don't know if they need to set them as their, like, power of attorney or not. I think it just depends on the situation and what, how they feel about their families and such.
0: Yeah, it just it isn't... Sorry, it is, like, interesting circumstance because, as you stated, with the issues around your father's passing, how there was all the family... Things to organize and figure out who's going to do what and who wanted this and who wanted that. And I, I mean, I see that all the time. Right. And medicine is like the family stuff is what is so ugly or disorganized. So it's just, I mean, a death duelist sounds like a really good idea. Right. I just, I'm wondering if you would need to give that person like legal protection to honor your wishes, which I mean, there's so much bureaucracy and legalese and everything we do Mm -hmm. it's not i'm not advocating for more of that but i would like to understand and advocate for this idea to actually be executed for the dying person Mm -hmm.
1: it probably would make more sense to be a power of attorney but it's i guess really up to the family the dying as what they choose but definitely i see quite a few trans people And I would highly recommend choosing a power of attorney, even if you think you don't need it. Someone that's going to respect your wishes, bury you under your chosen name, presenting in your chosen manner. Mm. Um, Because that is a huge problem, especially here in the Bible Belt, of trans people dying, And then they don't have a will, and then they're placed under their parent care, some of who might not accept who they are. And then bearing the one under their dead name, wearing clothes they would never be caught dead in. Um, So trans death care is a huge, um, it's something you really need to focus on, I think.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I can't say I've come across that too much in my personal experience, but it's definitely an interesting concept. I feel like we've covered quite a bit of ground here. Do you have any other final thoughts or anything else you want to cover related to either dance or massage or Mm -hmm. mortality in general?
1: I think as a physician, what do you wish that people knew about dying
0: It can be a very complicated or a very simple question. And I Mm -hmm. think right now it just feels like the simple answer is more appropriate. Yeah. And maybe that's what I'm hoping will come out of this project. But Mm -hmm. I just wish everyone really realized, like, really accepted that they are going to die. Right. It, it doesn't, I, I mean, you can get into the weeds on whatever aspect of life or death that you want to, but just if the simple acceptance that everyone is going to die, I think would permeate a lot more self-compassion, which I think would translate to more compassion in general for everyone, which I think most of us would agree. We could all use more of that in our communities.
1: Yeah. And I imagine with, COVID especially, people are becoming well, maybe a tiny bit more aware of
0: what's coming. I don't know. I, I hope so. I, I don't see how... Well, I do see how you that could not be the case, just because people are so good at avoiding discomfort. That is right. the default mode. And I think there are things in the ether, things in the zeitgeist that are waking people up Mm -hmm. um you had talked about some of your clients that are maybe elderly or geriatric and they are more acutely aware of their impending mortality um i think in relation to that uh, in the psychedelic space for example people like tim ferris and roland griffiths and other people in that realm are doing a lot of work to help people with Uh, terminal diagnoses such as cancer utilize psychedelic tools to help them become more comfortable and accepting of their death and it's it's a small population that that is applied to at this point but Mm -hmm. it's it's just going to be small step after small step that then materializes into larger sweeping movements of 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 acceptance of mortality and uh, I think this is a really good way to do that save psychedelics but just talking to people about their work and their life and how they relate to it is is another good tool
1: yeah so one last question for you (laughs) what is your good death
0: it's a hard hard question to answer because you don't know when it's going to happen. I think I think I think about death way more often than the average person. Um, I try to think about it on almost a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not always as effective or as present as I'd like it to be but that's why it's called a practice. Mm -hmm. The Some of the more interesting or like accepting moments i've had with my own mortality was like last summer or spring just driving um, on the interstate and all of a sudden there was a massive storm there was like inch size hail dropping
1: oh wow and
0: i've had bad experiences driving through storms before where there was like tornado warnings and stuff so Mm -hmm. with the intensity and how abrupt that storm came on i I was like well i'm gonna die right now like i'm going to be swept up in a tornado mm. and like doing like practicing that like moment of acceptance and just like imagining myself being lifted into the air and slung to my demise like was so free it's such a <laughs> counterintuitive thought process or experience but I, that's a very long convoluted way to say I, I think most days i, I I'm accepting that today could be the day Mm -hmm. Um, and that's I mean if you if you saw me or met me or worked out with me at the gym you'd be like this person's never gonna die like resting heart rate in the 40s and all that good stuff Mm
1: -hmm.
0: but it's just like that doesn't none of that matters because right anything can happen at any time and um, I just think that's a really important thing to to remind yourself of daily So in terms of like a post-mortem experience I've always thought cremation would be good but mm-hmm. between you and a couple other people just talking about the idea of this podcast I've talked about other less impactful ways to dispose of like the physical remains mm-hmm. that I haven't quite explored um, there's
1: a great book called From Here to Eternity by Caitlin Doty and she explored um, kind of what post experiences exist in the world okay. um, so she goes all around the world um, kind of narrating what she sees so I'd highly recommend that one
0: yeah I will add it to the reading list yeah the problem with the reading list is I can't keep up with it. <laughs> no, I will definitely check that one out. That sounds yeah. certainly pertinent to this podcast.
1: Yeah, but kind of speaking to what you were saying, your car storm story is there's definitely serenity in knowing you're fucked.
0: Like <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Like one of my friends, he recently took a trip with his family on the plane and like he loved airports like being in the airport is like his favorite space to be in which I think Mm -hmm. is hilarious
1: Uh, that's not mine for sure no
0: me either but then like I've known he's loved the airport for years but then to find out he hates flying and I I was like I don't understand like you love the airport he's like yeah but I desperately hate flying I was like okay (laughs) and I was like what's wrong he's like well this flight had a lot of turbulence and it just was uncomfortable and to me, like, I've had those other moments, like the, the car and the storm on planes where you're like, shit, sure, I might die. But it's, right. it's in, that, in that moment, it doesn't matter because you can't do anything about right. it. So like finding that serenity is so freeing. And there's uh, one of the podcasts I listen to frequently is with Peter Attia, and I can't remember the name of the guest he had on, but this guy had a moment. He was on one of the, the high-profile plane crashes in, I think, the New York area. The one oh, that wow. Tom Hanks was the pilot in for the oh, movie. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I know what you're talking about. I can't think of what it yeah, is.
0: I can't remember right now either, but there was a guy on the plane, on that plane, who he surely was going to die, and he saw, like, his life flash before his eyes, and then he was able to reprioritize everything that was important to him, and then he went on to, you know, have a more fulfilling, more successful, more rewarding life because he had that moment of just, like, recalibration because he saw it all end.
1: Yeah, I've heard several of those stories of having a near-death experience, having just, like, completely changed someone's life. I also saw a study where I think someone was having an MRI or a CAT scan And they ended up having a cardiovascular event and dying, but they, he had a DNR, I believe, so they kept the MRI going and they were able to see that parts of the brain that um, control memory were really lighting up. So there may be some truth to life flashing before your eyes
0: that's fascinating and whoever had the the moment of awareness to say hey keep the test going yeah the patient's wishes are to to expire like that's I mean obviously we don't know the exact context of that but
1: I'll have to find this study and send it to you
0: yeah please do that sounds so fascinating and that also sounds like it could be a study done on a broader scale especially in like hospice facilities Mm or something like that I I guess the ethics of that would be somewhat debatable, but if people were consented to it and that's what they wanted, I think it would be fairly reasonable depending on the IRB.
1: Yeah. The dang IRB.
0: Just kidding. <laughs> I know it's good. <laughs> uh, yeah, to a certain extent. We do yeah. need regulation for sure. But so. All right. Well, this was a lot of fun, and thanks for taking a chance and trying this out.
1: Yeah, of course. I love talking about
0: death. <laughs> cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll certainly be in touch and um, share some resources and keep this conversation going. But thanks thanks a lot, Haley. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. All right, folks. Well, that was episode one with Haley Ware. Uh, thank you for listening. And as a reminder, the contents of this podcast are for informational purposes only. A patient-physician relationship is never established through this medium, and nothing on this podcast should be considered medical advice. If you are having medical or emotional issues, please seek evaluation and treatment from a trained and trusted professional. The views reflected in this podcast do not reflect the views of any entity outside of the conversation. Mm-hmm.